I'd like to open today's episode with a puzzle. Reason has long been considered to be one of humankind's best attributes. It allows us to have science, technology, philosophy, religion. It is the mechanism by which you are making sense of what I'm saying right now. Speaking through Hamlet, Shakespeare wrote, What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. Yet there is a puzzle here. It's probably not a puzzle that you've stayed up nights worrying about, but I'd like to convince you that it is in fact perplexing. The puzzle has two parts. First, if reason is truly so infinite in faculty, if it allows us to make better decisions and to have better and more true beliefs about things, why are human beings the only animal that seems to possess it? After all, yes, human beings may uniquely benefit from reason, but Other animals would certainly benefit from this kind of cognitive superpower as well. Lions, bears, and tigers would certainly do better in their environment if they could come at truer beliefs and make more correct decisions. So why, over three and a half billion years of evolution, were human beings the only creatures that seemed to evolve this capacity in any significant degree? Second, if reason is truly the superpower that we often claim it to be, why are we so bad at it? I'm sure I don't have to tell you that over the last 30 years and more, psychologists have been discovering again and again that we deviate from rationality, that we are not the perfect creatures of reason that we like to think that we are. Consider the confirmation bias, where we seek out evidence that supports our pre-existing opinions, even when disconfirming evidence, evidence that might refute it, is the thing that we need to form truer beliefs. Or consider the anchoring effect. This was an experiment that baffled me the first time I saw it. Participants were shown a wheel and they could spin the wheel and it had two numbers on it, a low number and a high number. Then they were asked a question that they didn't know the answer to. In this case, I think it was how many countries are in the African Union? Not knowing the answer, they had to guess. What's interesting here is that they used the number they spun on the wheel that they knew had nothing to do with the number of countries in the African Union as a starting point so that people who spun the lower number tended to guess a lower number of countries than people who spun the higher number. This does not make any sense. These are not small defects or deviations from perfect rationality that could only be expected because it has to be implemented in a real human brain. No, no, no. These are fundamental flaws that really undermine the entire idea of reason. In the words of uh, psychologist Dan Ariely, we are predictably irrational. It's not merely that we are irrational. It's not merely that we make mistakes and that that's understandable. It's that we make very systematic mistakes, and those mistakes are of a very fundamental and basic quality. This is not the case of having a leg that's just a little bit too short. This is having a leg that doesn't even run. These, these two puzzles are the subject of the book by French researchers Dan Sperbet and Hugo Mercier, The Enigma of Reason. They are the double enigma of reason, and they present in what is, in my view, an incredibly compelling account to resolve these two puzzles. To jump right ahead at the answer, the way that they try to resolve this puzzle is that they argue that reason is not the general superpower, not the general purpose way of improving cognition and thinking and beliefs and decisions that it is often purported to be. Instead, they argue it is a specialized adaptation that was unique to the human environment. Consider bats' echolocation. Bats, by emitting an ultrasonic frequency, can hear, sort of, the way that we see. They can emit this frequency and they can tell where walls are or objects are in their environment. 
Now, why do bats have echolocation and so few animals do? Well, it's because bats often evolve to live in caves or in low light circumstances where seeing with your eyes is quite difficult or even impossible. Therefore, to evolve this capacity makes sense. But it also explains why it's so rare in the animal kingdom, because it's good enough to just see with your eyes in most circumstances. Similarly, Sperbay and Mercier argue that human reason has a similar adaptive adaptive quality, that it is something that evolved to fit our unique environment, which in this case is large bands of hunter-gatherers who have to coordinate in complex ways in order to survive. Reason is not uh, this general superpower, and instead the flaws of reason, the supposed problems and errors that we find in our own irrationality, are not because reason is just broken, that is just not good enough up to the task that it has been evolved for, but rather, Sprevea and Marcia argue, that we have misunderstood its function, that we've classically assumed that it is for one thing when it is really for a very different thing, and because it is for a different thing, it actually works quite well to that function, and it is merely that we are misascribing what the real purpose of reason is. So what is the function of reason? Well, Sperbe and Mercier contrast two views. The dominant view is what they call the intellectualist view of reason. This is the view of reason that says reason is there to allow us to think better across all topics. It is there for the solitary reasoner, the person on their own, to be able to come to better decisions, better beliefs by using their power of reason to deduce things about the world. In contrast, the authors suggest what they call an interactionist view of reason. And the interactionist view of reason says that the function of reason is primarily social. Reason, they argue, is not used to just generally across the board improve cognition for a sole reasoner. Rather, it is used to generate and evaluate the reasons that other people give. It is its supposed biases in this context are actually functional when you consider how it is supposed to operate. Similarly, you can't say that a fish's gills are not functional when you take it out of the water. Reason is not broken and the confirmation bias and other biases are not signs of definitive weakness because soul reasoning, reasoning about problems on your own, is not the domain of function of reason. I hope to express my own surprise at this finding because I think it's something that should strike you as rather unsettling. We long have thought that reason is something that an individual does in order to think better. It's why we're smarter than other animals. So this particular critique is a radical reshifting of the view of what reason is for and what kind of creatures we are. So to contrast that, I want to start with uh, another view, uh, probably one of the most popular intellectualist views right now in psychology, which is Daniel Kahneman's uh, dual process theory, or he's one of the people as a proponent of dual process theory, as he wrote about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Sperbe and Mercier are quite critical of this view, but I'll just outline it for you so you can understand what it is. So the dual process theory says that there are two systems in the brain, system one and system two. System one produces fast, cheap, quick, intuitive judgments, it is the kind of thing that we're able to make snap decisions on certain ideas, but it has these biases and weaknesses. System two, on the other hand, is slow, plodding, effortful, and deliberate, but it is closer to the classical conception of reason. It allows us to have deeper insights 
and arrive at truer beliefs. Now, the reason, according to Kahneman and other dual process theorists, that we have this enigma reason that these two puzzles that I mentioned at the start is that this latter system is quite costly. So the reason that human beings are the only animals that possess it is because other animals can get by fine with their cheaper, less cognitively intensive system ones. Similarly, the reason human beings often err is because we ourselves are reluctant to use this deliberative system and we will only use it when it is strictly necessary. Spiray and Mercy are quite critical of this view and they offer quite a bit of detailed evidence for why they believe their account is more accurate and that there are holes in this story. I won't go through the full details here, but I would like to explain their account of reason so you can understand it. I was convinced that they offer a better picture than that, but I think in order to be convinced of that yourself, especially if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow and trust Daniel Kahneman more than you trust me to give you an explanation of reason, I highly recommend reading The Enigma of Reason for yourself. However, I'll just briefly sketch their account of reason. So they argue that instead of two distinct classes of inferential processes, so what I mean by that is inference is how do we make arrive at more true beliefs or more correct decisions about things. And there are two ways that you can do that. One way is you can imagine sort of a classical reasoning algorithm as we can make explicit logical deductions. And another way is that you can have a system that gets certain inputs and because of its evolved patterns, so throughout the ancestral environment, there were certain regularities. So if it responds to a certain input with a certain output, always the same way, that that tends to produce good results. And also through learning, that learning can change the structure of your brain and that through those structural changes, it will produce better uh, outcomes. This is how we get inference. Now you can consider uh, an intuitive, opaque kind of judgment where you are not really able to introspect how it's arriving at that decision. You just know that you can trust it to provide good answers most of the time. Consider your visual system. This is a classic kind of in, uh, intuitive and opaque. Some people might call it unconscious, but I'm trying to deliberately avoid that word because I think it has some connotations I don't like. But I'll call it opaque kind of inferential mechanism. So one of the classic ideas is that in our ancestral environment and throughout most of our life, we know that light typically comes from above. This is because, again, typically in the ancestral environment, light would come from above, from the sun or from the moon. It would very rarely be coming upside down. Now, because of this, we tend to view objects which have a little bit of light on the top and a little bit of shadow on the bottom as sticking out towards us. Whereas we tend to think the opposite when the light is on the bottom and shadow is on the top of pushing in towards us, being sort of concave. Now, this concave and convexity is not an empirical fact. It's not something that is always true. And indeed, you can get optical illusions where you do tricks of lighting or tricks of uh, photography and make people think that something is inside out. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, our visual systems are flawed, rather they evolve to make correct predictions most of the time in a complex subject matter where indeed it's actually impossible to have a perfectly accurate picture given the 2D evidence available to our retinas. So they argue that this model of having a complex system that tends to produce correct answers given a particular range of inputs and the environment where it typically operates 
is the default standard for how the rest of the brain works. So there's not a second type 2 system which works on different principles. They are all working on this particular principle. They just have different types of inputs, different types of outputs, and different domains in which they work. So what is the reason faculty in this view? Well, they argue that like the visual system or like hearing or like any other of the modules that work in our brain, Reason also has quite a specialized input, it has quite a specialized output, and it has a very specific domain that it operates. It is not a general cognitive superpower. Rather, reason has the input of taking reasons, so justifications or explanations given, and evaluating whether or not they are good. And in doing so, it is also providing intuitive judgments. So that means that it is not directly open to introspection of what makes something a good reason and what makes something a bad reason is not always clear because these mechanisms are again very complicated and are not able for us to de deeply introspect how they function. So how does this differ, be, differ from what you would expect? You know, the, word, the idea that reason has as its proper domain of functionality reasons seems like barely an improvement. After all, the words are almost the same. It might feel almost like I'm giving you a tautology, that I might just be saying something that seems kind of obvious. How can it be true? Well, this may be a little bit of a linguistic coincidence because reason as a faculty, meaning the ability to make deductions, the thing that we do when we're being logical, when we're doing critical thinking, and reasons, meaning a certain type of linguistic or maybe a representational kind of object that gives a justification or an explanation for something have been treated quite differently both in psychology and philosophy. So even though it may seem obvious to pair the two, what Sperbet and Mercier are arguing is that this is not traditionally how it has been looked at. And indeed, I think that I can convince you that despite the similarities of the words, they do refer to quite different concepts. So reason, as I said, is this general faculty. It's an ability that we have to make correct decisions about things. Reasons, on the other hand, are usually sentences. They are usually a sentence that has uh, something that you are going to do or a proposition and then a justification for it. So quite simply, uh, it's, uh, I'm going to bring my umbrella. Why? Because it's raining outside. Because it's raining outside, with that because, is a reason for bringing my umbrella. Now, what they argue is that reason as a faculty takes as input these kinds of sentences or these kinds of uh, propositions about the world and then evaluates, is that a good reason for that? Now, the real power of reason is that it can use the input from other modules, other inferential modules, to help in its process of evaluating reason. So the actual form of a reason itself is quite limited, quite narrow. It's usually a sentence. It doesn't usually have that much complexity to it. However, because sentences themselves can be about anything, because the content of a reason can be almost anything, this allows us quite a bit of versatility in the things that we are able to reason about. And so what is happening here is that even though the reason faculty deals with quite a narrow range of inputs and it makes intuitive judgments about those inputs within that domain, it is often delegating the responsibility of, well, why would bringing an umbrella, uh, why would it raining be a good reason to bring an umbrella? 
well, you might say to yourself, you might have, okay, well, it's if I get wet, that's going to be unpleasant. I want to avoid being unpleasant. Well, you may not explicitly articulate these sub-reasons, but what's happening in your brain is that you have some intuitive feeling of being outside and being wet from some other part of the brain. It's not reason. And that when you are evaluating the reason, this feeling gets put into the weight of, is this a good reason? for being able to do that. It's likely that the functioning of reason itself is quite a bit more complicated, but I hope to express to you that rather than it being some really hyper general module that deals with all types of inputs and gives all types of outputs and makes cognition better, it's not some secret sauce. Rather, it is like every other module, like vision, like hearing, like everything else, it has quite a narrow range of input even if the content of what it is processing over might be quite general. Uh, Sperbe and Mercier make the comparison to vision, where vision has quite a narrow range of input. Uh, it's only the photons impinging on your retinal cells, and it has a very specific type of output that's coming into parts of your brain that say where things are located or what objects they might be. And the process is quite intuitive and opaque. However, because we can see anything, that there might be as content almost anything in our environment, vision is quite versatile. And so they see reason as being quite similar, that it has a very narrow range of input, in this case reasons, but because reasons can be about anything, and because that aboutness uses other inferential modules in the brain, this allows us to reason about many things. So how does this view of reason resolve the enigma, the two puzzles that I presented earlier. So first, this suggests that rather than being a general purpose ability, reason is a specialized function. So it doesn't exist in other animals because other animals don't need it. They can come up with correct beliefs about things. They can come up with correct decisions just using the inferential modules. Again, reason is not itself generating these beliefs. It is delegating that to those modules. So the purpose of reason is that it is an add-on that is used to communicate why you might want to do something or to justify your behavior or justify why you believe a certain thing or why you think something is correct to other people. In other words, it is taking the output of these very complex inferential modules that themselves arrive at the correct beliefs and it outputs them in a format that you can explain to other people and it takes the reasons other people gives you and decides whether or not they are good. So from this viewpoint, we can now look at reason in this new context. So many experiments have shown flaws in individual reason, meaning that we make mistakes, we make cognitive errors, and they have presented lots of different evidence that we do this. Now, interestingly enough, Sperbe and Mercier cover a literature which shows that it's just, it's not quite as big as the cognitive biases literature, but when you take groups of people and you give them these puzzles and you allow them to discuss it together, meaning that they can present reasons to other people of why they think something and they can debate them, it turns out that people when they do this uh, group facilitation process are actually quite good reasoners, that they overcome a lot of the biases that they would originally have as individuals. This suggests that reason's function here is primarily social and they argue that the performance in this case often exceeds the very usually exceeds the average performance so meaning that if most people get a question wrong they will often get it uh, a larger percentage will get it right and some in some specific cases sometimes the group uh, result 
is better than any individual participant. So even the smartest member of the of the um, discussion group does not perform as well as the group as a whole. So this is definitely some evidence that reason has this particular social kind of function. It also helps explain why reason might be biased and lazy. Bias meaning that it makes systematically wrong choices and lazy in that we don't really want to try very hard to come up with good reasons. In their view, this is because as an individual point of view, reason is not there to do the cognitive work. It's not do, there to do the calculations and computations. Rather, it is there to communicate why you think something and provide it in a format so that other people can then consume it and evaluate it. So from your own end, this justifies a certain kind of laziness. Because reason is not the thing doing the, the, the deep evaluation, it's, it's some intuitive or opaque process, you don't really expect reason to come up with a good answer. So you use your reason module to create a reason, but because you're not using it to guide your decision, it's mostly for social consumption. So that explains why many participants give kind of flimsy reasons or they don't really think about something too deeply in the beginning. The second reason is that because we anticipate having debate or having some justification, we are a lot more stringent of the reasons that we hear from other people. Not because we expect, well, their reason module is actually doing some calculation and they're actually using their reasons, but rather because we maybe don't trust their inferential processes. We may expect them to be operating in their own interests. We may expect them to uh, not have necessarily a correct answer. So. When we are evaluating other people's uh, reasons that they give us, we are a lot more stringent. And so this asymmetry that we are lazy with our own reasons and very critical of other people's reasons makes evolutionary sense. And it means collectively, when we reason together as a group, particularly in areas which are cooperative, where we don't have strong reasons to distrust the other people, we can often arrive at very good conclusions or very correct reasoning much better than the individual case. So from this uh, process, I think this presents a very different idea of cognition and how we think about reason in general. This suggests that the reasoning part of the mind is really this psychological add-on which is used to take what is the majority, including reason itself, the majority of our cognitive processes, which are intuitive opaque inferential processes, meaning that we don't really know why they're giving the answers they do. And reason is there to provide plausible justifications or plausible reasons, look for things that they can explain in linguistic forms, why it is a certain way. But because they are not themselves producing the inferences on all the different things, because the reason module itself isn't saying why bringing an umbrella is good when it's raining because it is merely delegating that to a more intuitive process that, you know, you feel bad when it's wet. Because of that, it makes sense that our reason has these particular qualities. It also makes sense that we are the only creatures that possess it because, let's say, bears in the environment, they can't, they don't have any language, they can't communicate very deep thoughts to each other. And so therefore, it wouldn't make sense for them to have a reason faculty because they can make their own intuitive processes. And if they had a reason, they wouldn't be able to communicate it to other bears. And if bears had a reason to tell them, uh, bears don't have another reason to tell them. So they're not able to evaluate the reasons of other, other bears. So this makes sense of why human beings are the only creatures to really develop reason in this way. So I'd like to share a little bit of why I think this idea is correct. I've kind of explained a little bit what I think the Sperbet and Mercier argument is, but I'd like to explain why I was persuaded. 
So first, beyond the incredibly thorough evidence that they present in the book, which I'm barely touching on here, I have a few reasons for thinking this is correct. So the first is that from an engineering point of view, what would a cognitive superpower even look like? When we look at actual software, when we look at things that solve what you could call cognitive problems in computer systems, they tend to look like modules. They tend to look very similar to the type of opaque inferential modules that Sperbay and Mercier are describing. Now, it is true that I can usually go in and look in the source code of uh, a library that I'm using that has a particular function. But from the program's point of view, I often can't do that. So if I'm deciding to use a, a math module, let's say, that uh, does a particular type of calculation, I'm just using that calculation. I can't go in and look around at exactly how it does that calculation, and maybe I it would be bad for me if I were to even do that. So from an engineering point of view, it kind of makes more sense to see the complex idea of human thought and human thinking to be broken into a lot more specialized functions that are individually less impressive. So instead of thinking of one particular module that sits on a high throne and dictates orders to all the other sub-modules, we could think of a lot of different modules as being like different tools in a particular library. And together, collectively, they're quite impressive, but individually, they're less impressive. And they may even have subcomponents that are even less impressive and more basic and more mechanistic themselves. So from an engineering point of view, I find this explanation satisfying because it resolves that kind of mystery of how could you even design something that is just generally intelligent or just generally good at making inferences. Second, one of the most unsettling things discovered in psychology is that often our reasons do not precede our actions. So you can do clever experiments where you can provide uh, a good reason for someone. I should re-explain that. And create a situation where the experimenter knows the true reason or the true motivating force for a particular decision that the person who is participating does not know it themselves. So a classic example of this design is split brain studies, where because you cut the corpus callosum in the brain, the left half of the brain can no longer communicate with the right half of the brain. And what you could do is present information to the right half of the brain, which does not have the ability to uh, communicate, does not have the ability to verbalize its responses that will indicate a particular type of decision. And then you can ask the left half of the brain why it made a particular decision. And what's unsettling is that it has no difficulty completely confabulating responses. So one example... They were presenting images, and they had to ask which ones go with which. And they presented uh, a snow scene on the right and a chicken on the left, and the right hand pointed to a shovel, a snow shovel. And they asked the person, well, what does chicken and shovel have anything to do with each other? And the person said, oh, well, you use the shovel to clean the chicken coop. Well, this was completely false. The reason they had selected the shovel is because it matched the snow scene. But the part of the brain that generated reasons had no difficulty confabulating a reason. This is very unsettling. This creates the idea what one researcher said of the, the tail wagging the dog, that we believe that we're in charge, but really we're not. We're just explaining our behavior after the fact. Now, I think this provides a bit of a different perspective, because if we believe that rather than reason being a distinct process, a uniquely human process, the center of the soul, if you will, if you see it as just being a specific module that is itself like all the other modules, that it has inferential uh, processing, that it's itself opaque, and it takes inputs and it provides outputs, but that the things that it operates over are these linguistic constructs of reason, 
then if you look at it this way, it's not nearly as unsettling. It's the fact that almost all of our processing is done at this inferential level, that we have intuitions, impulses, instincts to do things. And reason is simply coming there to try to offer an explanation why. Now, sometimes that explanation might be wrong, especially if you construct an experiment in a way where the experimenter knows better than you what the reason is. But this doesn't mean that we are not in control of our lives or that we are identified with this reason module and we're just riding along for what is essentially an unconscious or deterministic process. Rather, it is simply that we often don't have access to the true motivations of our behavior. And so because we don't have access to the true motivations of our behavior, because they come at us as feelings and impulses, not as linguistic objects, not as full, fully formed reasons, we're often guessing. We're often trying to provide a reasonable justification for what we're doing. So this, I think, really, uh, really fits my view of reason. It doesn't also suggest that reason is impotent. It doesn't suggest that reason is completely divorced from our ability to make decisions. Indeed, Sperbea Mercia covers some evidence that show that where reason might play a role is not in the primary motivation of the initial act, but in moderating it based on what you'll be able to justify later. So if you have some impulse to do a particular action that your reason module says, I'm not going to be able to justify this, I'm not going to be able to explain this to other people, reason might clamp down on that particular response. Indeed, in one experiment, which was quite interesting, students were offered a travel deal that was quite cheap, and it was before they had a major test. Now, they were offered a fee that they could pay to extend the length of the deal until after they found their test results. And many students did that. Now, despite this, students actually decided to get the deal regardless of whether they passed or failed the exam. However, by passing or failing the exam, they had a reason for justifying their travel purchase. If they pass the exam, they could say, well, I want to celebrate that I passed the exam. And if they fail, they say, you know what, I need, a, I need a vacation. I'm clearly too stressed. So in this case, the reason didn't justify the behavior, but participants were willing to pay extra. They were willing to delay their behavior so as to obtain a socially justifiable reason to augment why they're telling people they're going on this vacation. So I see reason as being more of a feedback mechanism in this sense rather than being the primary motive. We have these inferential intuition judgments that make our behavior, that make our decisions, that make our beliefs. But then reason is the what will this look like to other people and how can I... Uh, present a coherent, rational view of myself to other people. And so we use that to moderate our behavior. So you can think in some self-improvement context that maybe you don't want to do something, but if you can't think of a good reason for justifying it, reason might override your other impulses. And in this sense, reason is not uh, a different kind of module, but just like every other kind of module that provides collective input into your behaviors and decisions. So one thing I find really interesting as justifying this idea is that independently, and I'm kind of surprised the authors didn't mention this anywhere, perhaps they hadn't heard about it, is that machine learning researchers, so AI researchers, are kind of coming to almost the same conclusions as Sperbea and Mercier. So one of the major problems of machine learning right now is that it can produce very sophisticated answers, but we don't know why meaning that it goes, you have some input into this enormous black box where there's maybe tens of thousands of pre-programmed neural network structures, and then it gives an output with some confidence intervals about what decisions it thinks it should make. 
Now, the problem is that if these decisions are particularly important, you can imagine a military situation where it decides to drop a bomb on a facility. You can imagine a medical scenario where it opts for a particular type of dangerous surgery. You can even imagine a financial situation where it decides to sell or buy millions of dollars worth of assets. Now, in this situation, the person who developed the algorithm usually knows that the algorithm itself is not malicious, that it's not trying to deceive them. However, from outside consumers, as a third party who's consuming the output of this machine learning algorithm, we would like to have some reasons. We would like to have some sort of justification for the decision it's making, both so that we can evaluate that decision and decide whether or not we think it's good enough, but also so that we can prevent being boondoggled by the machine learning algorithm just say, this is what my intuition is, even if that turns out to be somewhat nefarious or it turns out to not be in our best interests. So one of the proposed solutions that I have heard is to actually take a second machine learning module that gets trained on the first machine learning module and that second module will learn to read the input and output of the machine learning module and translate that into human readable sentences that provide justifications for why you are why the machine learning algorithm made the certain uh, decision that it did. And what is very interesting about this is this is exactly the same process that Sperbay and Mercier are arguing as actually developed in humans. So human beings also face the machine learning problem of the general opacity of our own thinking and how we're arriving at particular decisions. And that the solution was to develop another opaque and inferential system on top of it that will take as input the, the output of the other systems and try to provide justifications for them. So... The fact that in our own engineering context, our own artificial intelligence context, we are arriving at a similar kind of problem and a similar kind of solution, I think is, uh, is at least corroborating evidence that this view is correct. So what does this mean for you? I've, I've kind of gone into the weeds a little bit here explaining this view of reason and you might be answering, you know what, that sounds super complicated, so what? What is the benefit to me? How does this impact my life? How do I use this to do something better if I am not going to become a psychologist and not going to be debating these ideas? Well, I think that there are a few ways that this has some real practical implications. The first is that if we properly view the domain of reason to be social, it means that correct beliefs and correct decisions are rarely going to come from a lot of solitary thinking and solitary reasoning. Rather, especially when you have cooperative partners that have the same interests in mind, discussion, debate, is the proper domain of reasoning. So if you have a debate, even though you are lazy, even though you are biased, other people are going to be much more scrutinizing of your biases and they're going to be much more critical of your lazy reasons. And this cooperative process of each suggesting reasons and debating it is probably the true situation of reason and really where it shines. So this also suggests that to be smarter, you want to find the right environments. You want to be in the right environments where discussions about things are happening and you have intelligent consumers of the reasons and justifications and explanations you give and that you have people who are themselves suggesting good reasons so that when you evaluate them, you can come at better decisions. 
I think this is a big switch for me because I've tended to do a lot of my learning and personal development and growth in quite solitary contexts. And this really says that, you know what, that's not the optimal approach, that maybe the benefit of, let's say, going to grad school or going to do a PhD is not simply because you get access to more lecture materials or because you get a degree at the end, but because you get to be in a room of smart people and therefore you are going to be smarter as an outcome of being in that environment. Second, this suggests that most, if not all, of our cognitive prowess is sort of intuitive and unconscious. So, unconscious is the word that Sprevet and Mercier used to describe these things, and I prefer the word opaque. I, I like the word opaque more because unconscious sort of suggests that the entire operation of that inferential mechanism is not in your consciousness at all. And I think it may be true that it's not available for introspection, meaning that we can't know why you are getting a particular intuition. However, those intuitive processes, I think, are something that we feel, even if it's something that we can't verbalize and think about in a rational way. Meaning that if I think something is a bad situation, I might have a strong feeling about it that I can't really explain in detail. Or I might come up with an explanation that turns out to be false. So from this viewpoint, I prefer the word opaque to unconscious, because unconscious, I think, falls into the same... Uh, error I believe other researchers were making when they said that they identify the self or the soul or the locus of human consciousness with this particular faculty of reason and then suggest because most of the faculties are not doing reason and they're not the uh, majority votes, reason does not have the executive control, it's not the king of the human mind. Because of this and because many of our behaviors are going against reason or against this sort of faculty, that therefore we're not in control of our lives. And I think this is a mistake because it's really a definition of who is the we here. And I think that it's a mistake to over-identify with this one particular faculty rather than the broader capacity of human beings, which is not only this particularly narrow view of reason, which is creating justifications, but the entire inferential mechanism, which is not only your reason, but also your visual system, your audition, your kinesthetic system, um, your many inferential processes about things that you have experience with. So I think that uh, this should also have us rethinking what we are. If you view reason as being just like any other cognitive module and having a quite specialized function, I think that it no longer makes sense to view us as rational creatures, as being a creature that is entirely rational and then we get inputs from some sort of part that is separate from us, that is its, itself uh, an intuitive or unconscious or animalistic kind of process. Rather, I think it's proper to identify that we, if there is any such a thing as a self that we can reasonably talk about, should encompass all of these things and not just this reasoning impulse. I think it's a particularly mistake of people who are of a particularly intellectual or rational bent to view themselves in that way and to try to distance themselves from their more intuitive, more emotional, more uh, opaque inferential mechanisms. Finally, I think that this should also raise your uh, evaluation of the ability of society or large collections of individuals engaged in debate and constructive dialogue to arrive at correct beliefs. 
if you have been reading the psychological literature, you may believe, you know what, humanity is hopeless. We have too many biases. We're too dumb. We're too stupid. We're not able to overcome our problems. And I think that that pessimism or that cynicism about human nature uh, deserves some reflection. Because if you look at the society, it's enormously complicated and it seems we're actually quite effective at doing things. Now, you may disagree about the aims of those things, but I mean... I live in a society right now where most of the things that allow me to live and function, I don't even understand, and I don't feel like I'm even uh, a particularly stupid member of society. And this is true for almost everyone. And so I think this aggregation of knowledge, this aggregation of more rational beliefs in a collective is actually a function of reason as understood by Spurbe and Mercier. So I think that this should also make you rethink somewhat your view of political discussions or arguments. When you see people who are engaged in debate and they only raise up arguments for their side, I don't think you should necessarily wag your finger at them and say, you're being irrational or you're being uh, conceited. Rather, you should say, you know what, this is how reasoning functions, that each person presents their side and that we as an audience evaluate them. I think that this can sometimes backfire, and I think this is something that Spurvey and Mercier did not talk about enough, which is that because in a social context we get points for having the winning argument, meaning that we get social esteem for being the person who won the day, that may mean that it's selfishly in our interest to hold on to false beliefs or to promote an idea further than it should go, especially if it doesn't have material consequences to us so that we can be the winner of that debate. And I think in many situations as well, there's other game theoretic reasons why this cooperation may fail. In politics, for instance, we may wildly mistrust the other side and their intentions, so we may not be able to listen to their reasons no matter how good they are. But I think these should be viewed as aberrant cases rather than the default for reason, which is that reasoning in group situations where we largely have the same goals in mind and we're not largely fractured by uh, tribal coalitions, that we tend to arrive at better decisions by reasoning in groups. I think the implications of this book is vast. I've barely touched the surface of what I think this means. And so I think that if you are interested in the topics of psychology, rationality, and just what kind of creature you are in the world, um, I think this book is definitely worth reading. It may make you rethink how infinite our faculties are or in godlike apprehension, but I think it is something that will definitely benefit you in changing how you think about the world. That's it for this month's book. Next month, we're going to be reading uh, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins and continuing the evolutionary theme and uh, discussing sometimes now the biology in more detail. Thank you very much.